Please stand for the reading of today's epistle lesson from the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now the main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and the true tent that the Lord and not any mortal has set up. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, hence it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They offer worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly one. For Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, was warned, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. God finds fault with them when he says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I had no concern for them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Sharon, thank you so much for reading our lesson uh, this morning. Uh, Grace and peace to each of you in the name of Christ. Uh, We're so glad that you're here on this last Sunday, as Casey has mentioned, uh, of the month of May. It is a trifecta, uh, as she mentioned, in terms of our celebration. We're celebrating Memorial Day, Pentecost, and also Aldersgate Day, uh, which if you don't know what that is, you'll know before the benediction a little bit later. But we welcome you. And those of you who are with us online, it's a great joy uh, to be with you today. Wherever you are, we're so grateful that you've tuned in to join us in worship Uh, and in fellowship. I too want to just say a word of thanksgiving for Ellie Kate, uh, our 13-year-old, our eighth grader at Vanderbilt Hospital who is making miraculous recovery and her parents wanted me to remind you of how grateful they are for your prayers. God has heard and God has moved in her life in such a marvelous way and we say thanks be to God for this miraculous blessing that he has shared with this family. We're continuing our series today that we started two Sundays ago on the book of Hebrews uh, under the theme called Anchored, or what I prefer, Anchored Down. 
actually is the one I prefer. Uh, I don't know if you saw yesterday our Commodores, Vandy boys did pretty well uh, in defeating Florida. They're in the final today. And I have to say from my point of view, nothing tastes as good as fried gator. It was a wonderful day for the Commodores. Apologies to alums from Florida. Congratulations to Vandy alums as well. These 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews contain the apostolic preaching of the early church. In fact, the author identifies his material as an exhortation. And we've said before that word literally means encouragement. And this particular message is addressed, unlike other epistles, not to a community of Christians like Corinthians or Romans or Ephesians, not not to an individual like Timothy and Titus and Philemon. No, this particular epistle is addressed to an ethnic group, to Jewish Christians who are now professing faith in Jesus, who are struggling in the midst of a difficult situation. They're second-generation Jewish Christians, probably in Rome, in Italy, and the preacher, the writer, is urging them to hold on to their anchor, to stay tethered to the source of their hope. They're being ridiculed, both now by the synagogue and the state. Indeed, if you know this period of Christian history, about 80 AD, the synagogue is now labeling them as heretics. And the emperor, the state, is labeling them as unpatriotic. And consequently, there are many in the church who are crying uncle, who are about to throw in the towel. What's interesting to me is the author is not advising them as we would to keep a stiff upper lip or positive thinking or bootstrap theology. I'm reminded of how Dr. King once said, it's, it's all right to say to someone, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, unless that someone has no boots. And these followers are losing their footing, their foothold. Their hope, of course, like our hope, is not in self-help. We need more than self-help. In fact, self is the one who got us into this trouble. It's Jesus He's the anchor. He's the great high priest through whom, as we said last week, gives us full access to the Father. Now, in B.C. days, before Christ's days in the Old Testament, we had limited access to God. In fact, the Scripture says that the tabernacle of Moses that he built was a wonderful thing, but it was just a sketch. It was a shadow, a copy of the heavenly one. But our text says in verse 1 that our high priest, that is Jesus, serves in the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of heaven, interceding for us. Uh, Casey, you mentioned that Pentecost 50 days after the resurrection, right? But did you know that the ascension, Jesus returning to the Father happened 40 days after the resurrection, which says to me that ever since the ascension, Jesus has been working remotely at home, interceding for you and for me. What I want to suggest to you today is that much of the content in Hebrews chapters 7 through 10 is essentially a comparison between two covenants, the old and the new. 
the law and grace, Moses and Jesus. But it's very clear, according to verse 6, the writer says that Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises that makes the first covenant obsolete. Now look at that word mediator for a moment. That is a key concept in this text. The Greek term is mesites, which literally means a mediator is one who stands in the middle. It's one who intervenes and intercedes between two parties in order to reconcile and restore harmony. I read an interesting definition this week of mediation. Mediation is conflict's way of looking at itself. Mediation. And Jesus is our mediator. He stands between God and humanity in order to reconcile us, to restore harmony between God and humanity. In other words, Jesus is the go-between that actually facilitates a better covenant. Now, I want you to pause it there for just a moment because I want to say a word of caution to you at this point that to say that the new covenant is better than the old covenant does not mean that the old covenant was bad. It doesn't mean that. In fact, Paul says in Romans 7 verse 12, look, the law is holy and the commandments are just and good. I don't know why it is, but you know, in our postmodern world, particularly in 2023, we have a tendency to eviscerate everything that happened before we were born. And there's a name for this kind of thing. It's called ethnocentrism. And that's the idea that my culture, my group, my generation is superior to all others. I don't know why we do that. Uh, from time to time, whenever I hear boomers, and I'm a boomer complaining about millennials, I'll usually say, well, you raised them. But it's a form of arrogance. This feeling that we need to invalidate the past. And don't get me wrong, it's easy to spot my sins in my past. And to be sure, there's a lot to repent about. But there's also a lot to honor about the past. I mean, at the very least, shouldn't we learn, shouldn't we learn from the past rather than just erase it or trash it? And here's the truth. We don't even know how ignorant we are right now, but historians will tell us in 2040 and we'll know. We see it in our denominationalism. We see it in our sectarianism. It's this idea that my dog is better than your dog, that my church is better than your church, and I'm a little more faithful than you. I'm a little more spiritual. I'm more righteous. I'm more ethical. And as my grandmother used to say, I'm just more better than you. I apologize to grammarians here. That's a double negative, and I'm aware of that. But you get the point. One of my mentors in North Georgia used to say, watch out for super Christians. And I say, what does that mean? Watch out for those who think that they're just a little bit better than everybody else. And friends, that's not holiness, that's egotism. 
My favorite definition of egotism is this. Egotism is a drug administered by nature to deaden the pain of being a fool. Or how about the wisdom writer, Proverbs 16, pride, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Ethnocentrism. Karl Barth, the great theologian from Germany, once said it like this, of all the disciplines, theology is the fairest, the one that moves the head and heart most fully, the one that comes closest to human reality, the one that gives the clearest perspective on the truth which every disciple seeks. But of all the disciplines, theology may be the most dangerous the one in which a person is most likely to end in despair or worse, to end in arrogance. So to say the new is better is not to say the old was bad. Look, the law is good. The commandments are good. The tabernacle is good. And all of that was initiated by God. In fact, Moses, who built the tabernacle, followed God's orders to a T when he built it, and yet it's just a shadow of the eternal one. So the question I think in chapter eight is this, how is the new better than the old? Well, I'm glad you asked, I have an answer to that. For one thing, we don't have to keep offering sacrifices for sin in order to gain God's approval or pardon. That's what the Levitical priests did. But Jesus gave a better sacrifice. He gave himself. He gave all that he had as the sufficient sacrifice for our sins once and for all. And as a result of that, God no longer defines you primarily by your sin. Verse 12 says, for I will be merciful toward their, toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And that's new, and that's better. By the way, if you didn't know, the word in Greek for better, you know what it means? More fully developed. There's something else that's better about the new covenant, and here's what I think anyway. The new covenant is not just about the thou shalt nots, although it is about that, but it's not just about the avoidance of the bad, it's about the engagement in the good. I was talking with someone this week who said to me, you know, I grew up in a church where it seemed to me that discipleship was more about what you don't do than what you do. And that's a part of it. If you remember John Wesley's three rules, you remember what they are, it started with avoidance of bad, do no harm, start with do no harm. But the second and third are do good and stay in love with God. But the new covenant is not just about the externals, it's about the internals. It's about a changed heart. It's about a new mind. That's what generates the desire, the motive to do good. It's not just about fear, it's about love. Sharon, you read that text, which is a quote in Hebrews 8 from Jeremiah 31. If you didn't know, this is the longest recitation of an Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It's Jeremiah 31, which is six centuries before Jesus came. There is this vision of the new covenant. 
And she read it from the NRSV. I'm going to give you a modern paraphrase. This is from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase called The Message. Here's the way he says it. Heads up. The days are coming when I will set up a new plan for dealing with Israel and Judah. I'll throw out the old plan that I set up with their ancestors when I led them by the hand out of Egypt. They didn't keep their part of the bargain, so I looked away and let it go. But this new plan I'm making with Israel, get this, isn't going to be written on paper. It isn't going to be chiseled in stone, no. This time I'm writing out the plan in them. I'm carving it on the lining of their hearts and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. They won't have to go to seminary to learn about me. They won't have to buy a book called God in Five Easy Lessons. No, they'll all get to know me firsthand, the little and the big, the small and the great. They'll all get to know me by being kindly forgiven with the slate of their sins forever wiped clean. That's more better. That's new. This is the work of the high priest. He's not interested in washing windows. He wants a wholesale renovation of our lives beginning with my heart. Better is not just about the exterior, it's about the interior. That's why when you buy a car, you don't just examine the upholstery, you, you get under the hood. That's what makes it go. Last Wednesday, May the 24th, was Aldersgate Day. That was the day, May 24th, 1738, that a movement began in London, England, in the heart of an Anglican priest named John Wesley. He attended a Bible study that night that absolutely changed his life. And some of us traveled there, and we went to the very spot, Aldersgate, where that happened. After the event, he recorded in his journal the details of that epiphany that night. This is what he wrote in his journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society on Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface of the epistle to the Romans. And about a quarter of nine at night, while he was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ... I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. End of quote. There are two things about that journal entry that intrigue me. Number one is Wesley was 35 years old when this happened. He'd been a pastor for over a decade. He knew theology. He had a degree from Oxford. He had the head knowledge, but he lacked the heart knowledge. The second thing that intrigues me is that he went to that meeting, that Bible study that night, unwillingly. He didn't even want to go. Now, that's an interesting disposition by which to start a movement, isn't it? 
And I bet some of you can identify with that. Maybe you came this morning unwillingly. I mean, after all, it's a holiday. Your neighbors are at the beach or in the mountains, but you're here. Some of you who are online, you're not here, but, but, but you're here. And sometimes we come willingly or unwillingly. I'm reminded of that fellow who overslept one Sunday and his mother went up to wake him up and go to church. He said, mother, I don't wanna to go to church. Those people don't like me, I don't like them. And she said, son, I mean for you to get up and go to church for two reasons. One, you're 42 years old. And secondly, you're the pastor of the church. And so <laughs> you need to be there. He came reluctantly, but God got a hold of him in spite of his reluctance. I mean, the same thing happened to Peter at Pentecost, right? When he preached that day at Pentecost and they started a mega church, 3,000 joined that day. But if you look back seven weeks before he preached that sermon, he couldn't even acknowledge his friendship with Jesus in the dark to a barmaid outside of a trial. And 50 days later, he's standing on the streets of Jerusalem at risk to his life, proclaiming the same man he denied as Savior and Lord. Something happened to Peter. Now, I've noticed that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are looking and those who aren't. And I've discovered in my own life that many of the blessings I've experienced didn't happen because I was looking for God. They happened because God was looking for me. So whether you come willingly or unwillingly, you come. And what God does on the inside starts to show up on the outside. Last word, one of my colleagues in Atlanta was telling me recently a story, an old story about a missionary in India in the 1940s. It was just after World War II had ended and the church that was supporting his mission wired him the funds for a steamer ticket to come home. He went to the port of departure, it was Christmas day in fact, and while he was waiting there, he witnessed a, a really troubling scene. There was a ship of German Jewish refugees that came in that docked temporarily in the port. And these exiles, he said, had been stuffed into small places on the ship with little human comfort. And when this missionary saw these poor survivors, he could only imagine their suffering, their pain, and he wanted to do something for them. I mean, after all, it was Christmas. And one of those Jews spoke to the missionary about the pastries they used to eat when they were children back in Munich. And so the missionary went in search of baked goods. And when he found the right bakery, he cashed out his ticket and spent it all and bought out the bakery. The exiles were unbelievably grateful uh, the, the missionary had to telegram the church and ask for additional funds because he'd spent it all and they wired it to him. And as you can imagine, when he got home, they had a meeting and they asked him, what did you do with the initial funds that we sent you? 
And he told them about the pastries for these Jewish exiles for Christmas. They were surprised and a little taken aback. And one man asked what you're thinking, why would you spend everything you had on people who don't believe in Jesus? And he said, because I do. Because I believe in Jesus. That missionary wasn't just living by the book. He was living by heart because somehow the word had gotten into the lining of his heart. What are you, what are you spending your life on? When you're anchored to a high priest, the likes of ours, who spent everything on you and me, you can't help but do something similar for others. You can't help it. When you're tethered to Jesus, it is amazing what you will do for love's sake. And when you do, it's like you become new and unwilling becomes willing to the glory of God. And I have to tell you, friends, that is more better than anything you can think of. May it be so, in Jesus' name.